I'm Isaac Dover. Welcome to Off Message. This week's guest, Congressman Adrana Espayat, who is the first formerly undocumented immigrant to be elected to Congress. He's a Democrat, represents Upper Manhattan, and parts of the Bronx in New York. We sat down with him at Bullfeathers, where we were planning to have a couple of beers, but then votes got called right as he was walking over, so we had to skip a Corona or El Presidente, which he said he wanted, make that up to him another time. I started out myself covering New York politics, and one of the first races I covered was the Manhattan Borough President's Race in 2005, when Espayat was an assemblyman uh, from Washington Heights. I think it was a nine-way race, and he came in, I believe, fifth. Uh, did not do all that well. But five years later, he was elected to the state Senate in New York, and then almost immediately started getting ready to run for Congress. Uh, his aim was to knock Charlie Rangel, the longtime congressman, out, and came very close to doing that in 2014. Some say he actually did win that race, and there was some funny business at the New York Board of Elections that helped pull that off for Rangel. But nonetheless, in 2016, Rangel didn't run again. Espayat ran uh, then for an open seat and won a really contested primary and has arrived in Congress working on what he told us was his initial passion, which is foreign affairs, even though he spent the last 25 years of his life in local politics and local government in New York. We talked about his experience coming here as a nine-year-old boy, being told by his grandmother to watch out for the men in trench coats, whom he was warned could round him and his brother up, and then going back to the Dominican Republic to uh, do the official paperwork after they'd already overstayed their visas and how playing in a swimming pool against his father's orders helped actually get him his visa with the consul general at the time. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover and follow me on Facebook too. Email me at Isaac at Politico.com. That's one S, two A's. And tell me who you want to hear on. and We will do our best to get them on soon. And of course, if you like the show, rate and subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. came to the United States from the Dominican Republic when you were nine years old. You're a boy. What is the first time that you remember hearing about what America was? Was it when you were still growing up in the DR? Yes, we, uh, we've, we felt and we heard that the streets of Manhattan were paved with gold. <laughs> Did you have family members who are already? Yeah, my grandmother was here before I was born. And she kept on, she visited us every once in a while. Not as often as people fly back and forth now, of course. But, uh, you know, every two or three years, she would go and visit us and bring us lots of clothes and toys and things from the U.S., from Macy's. We remember the Macy's bags. <laughs> and uh, she, she sent us photos uh, where she lived on the west side of Manhattan, in Riverside Park. And we just thought, with the snow, of course, we had never seen snow. <laughs> and we thought it was uh, an exciting place. And do you remember when they said to you, okay, we're going to get on a plane and we're going yeah. to New York? Yeah, well, first I came in the summertime in 64 with my grandparents. I guess I didn't know, but I guess it was that they were trying to see whether my brother and I would acclimate with the country. And we spent a couple of months here and we went back. And shortly after we went back, we came right back again. 
uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, and uh, yeah, I remember. I remember my uh, my last day in school, and how the the principal pulled me to the side and said, uh, "I'll go visit you, and you're gonna do great." And you know, she did come to New York once, many years, like maybe ten years later, and she went to visit me. When you when you get on the plane to go, do they say, "Okay, for the second time"? You're moving to America? Oh, yes. We knew very well. Even we, though you were coming, you didn't yeah. know because you were nine, right? No, and we then, knew, but we you, didn't know, you didn't know that you were coming on a, a tourist visa then, right? No, uh, no. <laughs> I didn't know any, any details or what my status was. I just knew I was coming to live in New York with, with my grandparents. And was that scary? Not at that time. Because you, know, you were we, leaving your parents, right? We, my mother first came with me, and then my father joined us a little later on. But we lived with our grandparents for the first uh, seven or eight years that we were here. But they had a big apartment on 153rd Street. They have four and a half rooms and two bathrooms. And so we were able That's to not share bad. that. We were able to share <laughs> And I think the rent was under $100 back then. <laughs> And how much to put? Those are your constituents now. How much? Oh, it's on, forget it. They'll get a heart attack if they hear how much they they compare what they're paying now to what they pay back then. So, at what point do you realize that you're in the country in weird circumstances? When we overstayed our visa, when our visa expired, and my grandmother pulled us over and told us, "If you see any any stranger." particularly if they're wearing a trench coat and they have glasses, don't go and come close to them because that may be immigration. That's what my brother and I first. So my brother and I, most, for the most part, my sister was older, so she understood a little better. But, you know, we understood what, what the situation was. Like really a trench coat and glasses, that's, that's what she correct. told you to watch. I and guess you that's ever- the description <laughs> of a spy or, or a detective, right, or an immigration officer. And did you ever see anybody with a trench coat and glasses? Well, when I went to Albany 20 years later, they were still there after me, many of them. <laughs> Well, so you've got that in your head. You're 10 years old when you have that conversation with your grandmother. How does that affect you growing up, going out, trying to be a regular kid? You know, I I remember that uh, when we went to, uh, my brother and I used to go to Woolworths on 145th Street. And when we get, when when I went there, you know, I felt kind of strange if I saw folks that fit fit the description that my grandmother gave. Uh, but, you know, kids are kids, and sometimes they don't worry about those things. You know, they don't worry about uh, serious things like that. But, uh, you know, it was impactful, and then we had to go back to, to get our papers. Yeah. And so what's that? What's that process when you're, well, they say you've got to go back? You're, you're we how had long? to go back, yeah. To and how old are you when you went back? It was about a year, a year and a half later, you know. Uh, I was 10, 11, I guess, you know. And so uh, we went back, and we went back uh, in the middle, pretty much, of a civil war, towards the end of the, the civil war in the Dominican Republic. So we're in the Dominican Republic, and there's shooting, and there's fighting, and the Marines are there. Uh, they occupy the island, the capital, and mm-hmm. the young guys, the, the constitutional forces, the folks, some of my cousins were part of the constitutional forces. Right, because you go back in... Dominican politics. Well, and, not, right? not myself personally. <laughs> not you, but your family. I, my family. Some of my cousins were fighting for the constitutional forces, and some of my colleagues here were fighting for the Marines. <laughs> I've learned as I came here that they were there. Uh, the Intrepid was the ship that landed there, and uh, I remember seeing the Intrepid in the coastline of Santo Domingo. 
And so there was some fighting going on, and one part of the city was controlled by the young guys, the constitutional forces. The other side was controlled by the Marines. So my father sort of like shifted, shifted us around to make sure that we were in a safe place. But we used to hear the shooting and, and the, and the how sound long, of war, you know. How long were you back there for? It must have been, I guess, about a month maybe or a little, a little longer. I don't remember the exact time, but several weeks, right? Until we were able to, I was told by my mother that uh, a young girl, a little girl barefooted, uh, took the papers, uh, the affidavits that we had sent to my mother's aunt's house. Mm-hmm. By, uh, by miracle, they, they landed there because everything was in disarray. There was no postal service. But some little girl apparently found the envelope or was given the envelope and she took barefooted, she took the envelope to my grand to my grandmother's sister's house in the capital, and they submit. Then they took the paperwork to the um, to the U.S. Consul General's office. Yes. So, and, and then I assume you get out of the Dominican Republic, out of that civil yes, war as quickly let, as you but can. But let me right? tell you the story of how it happened. My father took us to a hotel uh, where he felt we were safe, and behind the hotel, the Marines used to use their the background they are for their, their exercises, their military exercises. They used to bring down, I remember, tanks with helicopters. And so my father would tell us, don't get out of the complex. He would go out and, on errands and doing what he had to do for us to get the, the appointment with the council general. But kids being kids, we would go out to the pool. Mm-hmm. And we spoke a little English already, so we befriended some kids that were there in the pool. And sure enough, uh, and we met their parents that were, that were occasionally there with them, American kids and their parents. So uh, ironically enough, by, by, to our surprise, when we got to the council general's office, the father of those kids was the council general. And of course, he recognized my brother and I and began to speak to us in English. So it's a good my, thing you were breaking the rules. Uh, my father was <laughs> petrified. He just kept on giving us the evil lie, saying, you know, this is no joke. This is real. This is life and death. What's going on here? Do you think that you would have, uh, th- that it helped you get a Absolutely. The- no. The, the guy gave us the visa. The guy calmed my father down, actually, because my father seemed upset that he was talking to us, and he didn't know. Was it, did your father speak English? He spoke a little, but he didn't understand what was being said at that time. And so, uh, but then the guy told him, no, 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 I know your, your, your sons, you know, they swim at the pool where our kids swim at it. And he <laughs> gave us a visa and we left. And the, the, the council general's office was like a scene from Viet, from Saigon when people are leaving, you know. Right. You remember the helicopter scene? You know, but it was because people wanted to get out because there was still fighting going on. And so afterwards, is your father mad at you for swimming in the pool no, or no, happy no, no. that he you got happy, an in? He was, with- he was very happy that we came back home. We left the next day. You know, and you go back and you're living with your grandparents again? Yeah, we came back to live with our grandparents again. And we, we actually, my father promised that we would live, leave our grandparents' house the day I graduated high school. I was the youngest. <laughs> and the day that I graduated high school, he had the moving trucks outside the building. I thought I was going go to go to the movies or hang out or something. <laughs> I had to start moving furniture. To that was not much apartment. of a graduation present. That wasn't <laughs> much of a graduation present. So. Uh, when you come back... Is it a different feeling? Do you remember as a child now having papers, now being legally in the country? You don't have to watch out for the trench coat. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? I, remember. I mean, I, I knew the difference. You felt like uh, a relief, like something off your back, right? And uh, everybody was happy. My grandmother was praying. She, has, she, went to, uh, she went to say a mass 
she had a mass said, you know, for us, and we all had to go to mass to thank uh, La Virgen de la Altagracia, which is our, our, our protector saint, because we were able to get our, our green card. Had we not done that, we would have stayed over there, yeah. basically. Was there a shame that was there before? I mean, or was it just fear? Uh, no shame. You know, no. we we would. I was too too young to knew that uh, that I should know that or think that I should feel shameful for that. Uh, people treated us well. You know, it was a different time in Washington Heights. Right. Uh, you know, there were many families, Jewish families and Irish families, that were still there. They befriended us. They embraced us. And that's why I think, uh, you know, that's helped me in politics to, to build coalition because I know where I came from and, and I know what other people did for us to open up the, the road for us. And ha- you get involved first in uh, working in the community. How, how does it get to you running for office the first time? Well, there was this uh, black Baptist preacher who was named uh, the Reverend Rucker, Dudley Rucker, who ran... We had a church, a small church in the basement of our building called the White Rock Baptist Church. And he ran like a summer youth program there. And so he embraced a bunch of us. We used to spend our days there playing stickball right in front of his church. And so he eventually says, you want to make a little so money? So you're how old at this point? Uh, I'm in my maybe 12, 13. You okay. know, I have my working papers already. And so we were able to work with him. And he was a very militant uh, uh, reverend. And uh, he was a strong supporter of Alan Clayton Powell Jr. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he took the buses down to Washington to defend Alan Clayton Powell when he was being, there was an attempt to expel him from Congress and he had to go to the Supreme Court. And I wanted to go. My brother and I <laughs> wanted to go. The buses were, were parked. There was two or three buses parked right in front of the building where we lived. But our parents, of course, didn't let us go. They, we were new in the country. We had just had the experience. They're of, still of feeling war. maybe yeah. a little worried about things. Or? Well, you know, the war back home, right. they, you know, they didn't want us at that early age to get involved. But, you know, I really wanted to go. <laughs> and, uh, and they left to that us, yeah. You <laughs> and, know, and, 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 and then later, you know, I found, you know, like even some excerpts and some books about Reverend Rucker and what he felt about Adam Clayton Powell, how much he supported him. So what's the first campaign that you get involved in? I got involved with some campaigns with him, with with the with the Reverend, uh, with, for Powell. Uh, uh, there was a Powell race. There was a, uh, I believe, it was a Bella Asberg race. Uh, you know, he got us involved in, in school decentralization. We were kids, right? Uh, we picketed a supermarket, an AMP that sold spoiled food. Uh, you know, and he, I think he taught he taught us our rights, and he made us feel proud. He made us feel like Americans. And and you start running for office yourself in in ninety six, right? That's the first assembly. No, no, my no. first race was in nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. I ran against uh, the council member Stanley Michaels. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I had been elected. Uh, You're I, on the elect- I was I was elected precinct council president right in the middle of the drug wars over there, and I was part of the community board. I ran for the city council in nineteen eighty nine, and then in nineteen ninety three, in nineteen ninety one, when they redistricted. Mm-hmm. I ran again and lost a second time. And in 1993, I got elected district leader. You have a thing for, for running multiple. Well, well, right? That was with uh, Congress, three, too. Three, yeah. three times. Yeah, <laughs> trilogy. It's like the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier trilogy. Uh, I won the thriller in Manila. <laughs> well, you, you got, you got yeah. to the Assembly. Then you got to the State Senate in 2010. Uh, you are 
one of the uh, the rare exceptions of people who leave Albany not in handcuffs, right? <laughs> that's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, how uh, you, you really wanted to get to Congress? Uh, uh, international poli- uh, politics was always my dream. Uh, you know, I got sort of like detour into local politics because there was a guy named Charlie Wrangell who stood around for 46 <laughs> years. And did and not so, want to let you have that and seat. so, you know, uh, I hit sort of like a pothole, uh, a bump in the road for 20 years in Albany. Right. And then I'm finally here. But international, I'm in foreign affairs. I love international politics. You know, uh, my experience in, in, in the Dominican Republic in the Civil War, you know, coming here and watching the Vietnam War on TV, uh, being in, in my early college year, I remember driving back really fast from Queens College to tape in a cassette recorder Nixon's resignation speech. So you could just watch it over and over again? I taped it. No, I, no <laughs> the voice. No videotape back then. The videotape was the reel-to-reel. This was a cassette recorder, and I wanted to tape the, uh, the, the resignation speech. I was trained by the late great socialist uh, Michael Harrington who wrote The Other America, a book that was used by the Kennedy administration as a blueprint to fight poverty and misery across the United States. So I had that upbringing and that that background and I always felt that international politics, you know, I remember the day they sent us home from school when they killed Martin Luther King. I remember the day they killed uh, uh, Malcolm X, not too far from where we live. Right walking distance from where we live. So these are all things that mark my life and, 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 and shape me as a human being. And so, Did, did you listen to the tape, your tape of Nixon's course, visit again, yes. over again, and over? I lost it along the line, you know, but I kept on, I, I used to listen to it again. You know? <laughs> Why? Because I thought it was a historical moment. I was already a student of political science. Yeah. Of course, my father told me, so you're spending all that money to get a degree in <laughs> communism, right? How are you going to support a family being a communist? Uh, leading strikes and burning tires? I said, it's a, it's a science, Pop. It's a science, political science. Let's go. He goes, right. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, I was already a student of political science, and I, 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 this was uh, uh, historic, obviously. You know, it's still historic. I drive by the Watergate. <laughs> right. Uh, and I see it. I say, wow. You know? uh, when you talk with... Members, other members of Congress that you're getting to know here, and they're talking about undocumented immigrants, and they're talking about immigration policy. Does it get weird ever to say that you were members when I heard the president the other day (laughs) talk about it before Congress? I mean, that was extremely weird. You were sitting there, of course. I was offended because here he is, the president of the United States, a person that's supposed to be conciliatory and a uniter, not a divider saying that we must get along, but you know what? Let's beat up the immigrants. And everybody the next day, the same night, praising him about how moderate he was. But in the process, he was making the name of immigration synonymous with criminality. You know, you bring people that have committed a crime. Why don't you bring the grandmothers, the mothers, the fathers that worked in the factories that pulled this country up by the bootstrap? You know, why don't you bring those folks? Be even-handed, you know. Okay, people commit crimes. I'm not saying no no immigrants or undocumented have committed crime. By the way, all data shows that immigrants, and particularly undocumented, commit a lower percentage of crime than U.S. citizens. They have to. 
they don't want they, they don't go out of their house in the morning saying let me go get arrested now so I can get deported. They have to stay within the framework of the law if they want to stay in the country and continue to work and provide for their families. So for him to go up there and t tout and peddle this this cheap speech about unity and then go at heavy-handedly and punitively against immigrants, I thought it was a farce. He grew up in New York just like you did. He grew he's up in Queens. <laughs> you know, he's one of those guys from like upper, upper neighborhoods in Queens that never got accepted in Fifth Avenue. And maybe he has a chip on his shoulder because of that. Uh, do you think he understands the immigrant experience at all? It I grew up in New York. It I, doesn't I mean, seem it, 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 it doesn't seem to me that, that he has that connection. He might have exploited workers and hired folks that were undocumented and maybe a bunch of immigrants still uh, are porters and, and, and doormen in his building. But I think, you know, he came down from the uh, penthouse. We have to come up from the basement. And that's a different experience. And I don't think he has a uh, hands-on uh, ability to, to exp uh, not only experience that, but to appreciate that. And so he, you know, maybe he got everything in a, sim in a silver platter. You know, I mean, he was born with money. And, you know, we're not, I'm not, we're not criticizing that. You know, we come to this nation to do better for ourselves and our families and be part of the middle class and make money, yes, and do better for ourselves. But, you know, don't be puny. Don't beat up on the little guy. Don't kick them when they're down. That's, that's not being a New Yorker. Do you ever come across him? In, uh, I met him once, just in passing. You know, I never really just say hello, never exchange. He was never a constituent, of course. Uh, no. he, he was always outside. Well, actually, I represented some of his buildings on right. the west side in my Senate seat. Yes. Right. Um, I... Uh, I mean, because for me, I grew up in New York. Uh, I remember I grew up on the Upper West Side, so a little bit south of your district now. Uh, and, and Trump has always just been a person who's been in my life. I remember when those buildings. Uh, on, Jerry Nadler. Uh, Jerry Nadler. Could talk fought, to you a little bit about he, that. He can, and and there were uh, there were buildings that were fought for a long time, yeah. and it's yeah. Trump. And uh, nobody <laughs> understands Trump better in Washington than Congressman Jerry Nettler. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> that may be. He's been fighting him since the 70s, yeah, that's I guess. Correct. That's correct. But it is, when you grow up in New York, uh, as you did, as I did, you take the subway, you hear people talking a thousand different languages. Uh, it, it, it's a, a strange thing for you to say that uh, uh, Trump, having grown up in New York, doesn't get it, and, and maybe that's because of the way that he did grow up in New York. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I don't know much about his upbringing. I know he went to a military academy, and I know his father had money and sort of, like, helped him get up. But, you know, I'm not, not dismissing his work ethic. Obviously, to be successful like he was, maybe he did some good things. But I think, you know, for him to peddle this cheap message of division and to beat up on immigrants and to uh, score, try to score cheap political points on that, it's a disservice to our nation, and, and, and I think it's the wrong approach. He may not feel it now, but I think in the long run, it will be his Achilles here. Let's take a quick break and talk about Tripod. That's hashtag Tripod. We're teaming up with podcasters all over the country to raise podcast awareness. Be aware of podcasts. If you're listening right now, you are one of the one in five Americans that listens to podcasts. So thank you and congratulations. But one in five is not enough. We need to push that number up. I like to listen to all the Politico podcasts, but there's also Mark Maron's WTF podcast, which is great. There's The Bugle, this ridiculous comedy podcast out of England. Whatever it is, there's a podcast out there for everyone. We need your help. 
All this month, we want you to find one of those Americans who doesn't listen to podcasts. A friend, a relative, maybe somebody sitting next to you on the train or the bus who's wondering what it is that you're so engaged in on your headphones. Tell them. Explain to them what a podcast is, where to find one, how to listen. And when you complete that mission, tell us what you're recommended with hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. And now back to the interview. Do you have any pride as a New Yorker in having a New Yorker in the White House? Uh, I'm proud to be a New Yorker. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I, when, I, when, when I leave here, I'm like that kid from school that uh, you know, leaves the books behind, runs out, pushes that door, and is usually the door that triggers off the fire alarm, <laughs> and then goes home and, and then realizes that I left this book back in, in the classroom, right? I want to get home as quickly as and possible. you've only been in Congress for two months. Yeah, well, in, Albany, I, in Albany, I have one of the lowest per, per diem rates. <laughs> In history, I mean, I went exactly where I needed to go, and I got out of there as quickly as possible because I love New York, and I love uh, Manhattan, and now the Bronx, obviously. Too. But pride in having a New Yorker in the White House? I hope he does well for our city. You know, he hasn't represented us well yet. I don't think that there is pride in New York City with, a president, with President Trump. I hope he changes that. You know, I, I still, deep inside of me, I have hope. I, I always see the glass half full. I never like, like to see a half empty. What are you hearing from your constituents who had similar experiences to the ones that you had growing up who are thinking about these things and thinking about what it means to have Trump as the president? They're scared. People are scared. Even people with, that, are, that, are, that have their documents that are here legally are scared because if you look a certain way... You know, I was driving from Alexandria today with my assistant who went to pick me up. Uh, and we saw a police car uh, in, the, in the Memorial Bridge cutting across to, to, to D.C., pull over two vehicles. One of them was a working van, uh, work, sort of like a van of work, two workers with, with a, like a ladder in, on top of it. And they were both Latinos, obviously. The second vehicle was a woman that looked to be ethnic or Latina. And my assistant and I looked at each other and said, what does it mean? Are we reading too much into this? But that's the kind of environment the president has created. Are you worried about getting stopped? I, I got stopped and frisked as a young man, so yeah. getting stopped, you know, I got ID. Before stopping frisk I got ID, such a thing. I got ID in the Capitol. In the Capitol in Albany? Yeah, I, got, I used to get, I was there 20 years, I would get ID. When I, when, when I, some of the police officers, maybe I look Middle Easterner, and they will stop me and ask me to show them show them their ID. And then when mm. I show them their ID, they would like very meticulously look into it. And so you know, I, I I've, I've ever experienced this is not new for for us here. Now you have a, a pin, but, but, but <laughs> we have a pin. Hopefully, <laughs> the member of Congress, you get a lapel pin, but uh, so that that'll stop you from getting stopped in the Capitol yeah, but, here. You know, uh, look, he has permeated this uh, toxic. Uh, environment out there where some folks may feel that they can do something bad and get away with it. Because if the president is talking, speaking in those, those terms, in those tones, why can't I just uh, act out some of the things that he's saying? And that's very dangerous for a leader to set that kind of tone in a nation that's characterized by tolerance, by religious freedom the ability to assemble, to petition your government. These are the great attributes of America. That's why everybody in the world 
wants to come to America and wants their kids to be born Americans. You think it'll change the way the kids growing up think about the country? I think it will change because I don't know if he will be reelected. You know, and if he continues in this way, you know, many folks even uh, consider that he won't finish his term. But, you know, I'm not going to get there because it's too early, obviously, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet of doom. But, you know, I think he needs to change his ways and he needs to be uh, tolerant. He needs to be uh, beyond reproach. He needs to be a president of the United States of America. All right. Quick rapid fire here. Who's the first person you voted for? Mario Cuomo. What, so when he's running? When he ran for governor. So uh, the the first, 82? When he, won, when he won the governorship. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 82. Yeah. <It> was 82? <laughs> 82, I believe. Yeah, uh, and do you remember, like, was, did you want to vote for him? Or was oh, it yes. just like I it was love, a Democrat? I love, I love Mario Cuomo. <laughs> I'm sorry to say much more than his son. <laughs> I mean, Mario, has a relationship with the governor. It's good. It's good. But not like, not like Mario. <laughs> Mario was magnanimous. And he was, I love his, the way he spoke. You know, he was just like a, a tenor up there. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he said, you know, he, he, campaigned, uh, he campaigned in poetry. Well, he governed in prose. All right. I'm not going to let somebody who represents Washington Heights leave without telling me when was the first time that you saw Hamilton? When did you know that that was? You must have known Lin-Manuel Miranda for a well, long no, time I, I, from when he was a child. Uh, you know, In the Heights <laughs> was a fundraiser for me when it was off, 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 off Broadway. And uh, another play that he had, uh, Real Life Love Supreme, was another fundraiser <laughs> for me off, off, extra off Broadway. Yeah. Of course, when he got to do uh, Hamilton, he was already a big shot. So I got to see him uh, with his dad. And actually, Hillary Clinton and, 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 uh, and Bill Clinton were there. Melissa Mark Viverito was there. And that's when I got to see a great play. Uh, I think he has revolutionized Broadway. You know, to have a black man play Washington. Yeah. To have a Latino, you know, play another founding father. You know, that's amazing. That's great. And for people not even to think about it, yeah. to accept it as something natural, as something very American, right? That's revolutionary. Great young man. I'm sorry he didn't win an Oscar the other day because <laughs> he has already a He's Grammy, time. a Tony, a Pulitzer, right? And what else? What's the fourth one that I'm missing? It's an Emmy, Grammy, Emmy, yeah, Oscar, an Emmy. Tony. So he didn't get the Oscar. Yeah, There's only like a handful of people <laughs> that have all five of those. But he's young enough to get it. <laughs> all right. Congressman Adriano Espat, Thank thanks Thank for taking so the time. Thank you.